This program is brought to you by Bible Way Media, a work of the Ulaga Church of Christ. Welcome to the program today. This is Don Boyd with the Moody Church of Christ. I want to welcome you to opening the scriptures. Today we're going to continue in the book of Job. In Job chapter 31, we're going to see Job's final speech, and then we'll get into a like you whenever he begins to speak as well. So in Job's final speech in chapter 31, he defends his integrity. He claims his innocence where his friends have charged him with wickedness. Job also claims innocence in matters that humans cannot see, and that is his thoughts. Job also says that if he was guilty, that he deserved everything that was happening to him. But Job still wants his day in court with God to see and to understand why he is suffering so much. First of all, in Job 31.1, Job confirms that he has not lusted after a young woman in his mind. Job 31.1, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? This is the first virtue of his private life, which is mental purity. Job had solemnly resolved not to think or to look on, in other words, lust after a young woman. Over in the book of Proverbs, go to Proverbs chapter 6, verse 25. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 25. It says, Lust not after her beauty in thine heart, neither let her take thee with her eyelids. And then Jesus, over in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. Says, but I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So we see that Job here is confirming that he's made this covenant, this deal with his eyes, that he is not even going to look upon a young woman in order to lust after her. And yet, how much does that happen today? In Job 31, verse 2. Job asked what he could expect from God if he had not made this covenant with himself and allowed his eyes to wander. Verse 2, For what portion of God is there from above, and what inheritance of the Almighty on high? So he's asking that question. What can I expect from God if I did this? Well, he answers his own question in verse 3. He says he could expect destruction and calamity from God. Is not destruction to the wicked and a strange punishment to the workers of iniquity? So right there he's saying, if I did this, then I deserve what I am getting. Uh, the word of destruction there <clears throat> is not destruction to the wicked. The Hebrew word aid means oppression by implication, misfortune, or ruin, and that's Strong's definition of the word. And then he says a strange punishment to the workers of iniquity. The word strange there, the Hebrew word neker, Strong says means something strange that is unexpected calamity. Adam Clark said concerning this verse, and I quote, 
If I had been guilty of such secret, hypocritical proceedings, professing faith in the true God, while in eye and heart an idolater, would not such a worker of iniquity be distinguished by a strange and unheard of punishment? Unquote. So again, Job is saying there, you know, if I'm guilty of this, if I claim to be following God, and here I am lusting after women, I'm a hypocrite. There's nothing else about it. I am a hypocrite. While I profess faith in the true God, and my eye and my heart are wandering. Yes, he would be a hypocrite, and he would deserve to be had to be having this strange or unheard of punishment. And you think about the punishment that Job is going through. This is a very unusual and strange type of punishment. So he's wondering, why is this happening to me? In Job 31.4, Job says that God is a witness of all his thoughts and deeds. Job 31.4, Doth not he see my ways and count all my steps? In other words, God would punish him if he had these improper feelings and thoughts. But Job knew he hadn't done such things. So again, he's confused as to why all of this is happening to him. In verse 5 of Job 31, Job said he has not lived the life of a hypocrite. Verse 5, if I have walked with vanity, or if my foot hath hasted to deceit. He talks about vanity there. If I have walked with vanity, uh, the Hebrew word shay. Brown Driver Briggs defines that word as emptiness, vanity, falsehood, nothingness, emptiness of speech, lying, worthlessness of conduct. So if I had walked in this way, and then he also mentions there, my foot hasted to deceit. The word deceit, the Hebrew word mirma, deceit or treachery is Brown Driver Briggs definition of that word. So if I have walked worthless, lying, emptiness of speech, treachery, deceiving others, yes, I would deserve this. But in verse 6, he says, he wants his life to be weighed in the weight or the balances of justice, verse 6 of Job 31. Let me be weighed in an even balance that God may know mine integrity. Again, Job wants his character to be seen as what it truly is and to be treated accordingly. And Job knew that God knows his integrity. God knows our thoughts. God knows what, what we do. He knows why we do what we do. Go over to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, beginning there in verse 1. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. 
Okay, stopping right there for a minute. God knows us. He knows us. He knows our down-sitting. He knows what we're doing when we're sitting. He knows our uprising. He knows what we're doing when we're up. He understands our thoughts. He knows what we are thinking. Verse 3, it says, Thou compassest. The American Standard Version says, Thou searchest out my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. God knows everything we do. Verse 4, for there is not a word in my tongue, but, o, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it all together. In other words, God knows us intimately. He knows what we do, what we think, what we say, why we do the things we do, why we say the things we say, and such as that. So God knows us. We can't hide anything from God. We may try to hide things from others, but we're not going to hide anything from God. And Job is over here saying, <clears throat> I haven't hidden anything from him. He knows me. He knows I haven't done these evil things. So why is this calamity happening to me? In Job 31, 7, Job was willing to have the integrity of his life brought out before everyone. Job 31, 7. If my step hath turned out of the way, and mine heart walked after mine eyes, and if any blot hath cleaved to my hands. Adam Clark there says this concerning the verse, and I quote, I am willing to be sifted to the uttermost for every step of my foot, for every thought of my heart, for every look of mine eye, and for every act of mine hands, unquote. Job is saying that he, he walked in the path of true virtue. He did not covet what his eyes looked upon, whether that be something or some person and his hands were innocent. In verse 8, he says, If he is found guilty, then let this thing happen to me. Chapter 31, verse 8. If I'm guilty, then let me sow and let another eat. Yea, let my offspring be rooted out. If I've done these things, let him sow his field and others take the harvest. If he is guilty of these things, let him be deprived of either, and some say this could be produce, and some say it could be children. And the word offspring there from the Hebrew word ta'etza, as Strong's defines that as issue, that is produce, or children. So it could be either one there. But Job says that if he has been guilty of adulterous conduct, then let his wife be a slave to others. That's verse, verses 9 and 10, Job 31. If mine heart have deceived by a woman, or had been deceived by a woman, or if I have laid wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind unto another, and let others bow down upon her. Albert Barnes says this, and I quote, The meaning here is, let my wife be the mill wench to another. 
be his abject slave and be treated by him with deepest indignity, unquote. So he's saying there, you know, he's claiming his innocence. He hasn't done these things. He wouldn't set, you know, even though his wife earlier had told him, why, why are you maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He still loves her. He still cares for her. And he wouldn't have her subject to those things. So he's saying, I haven't done this. And then in chapter 31, verse 11, Job says that adultery is a wicked crime that he would not vindicate. Verse 11, for this is a heinous crime. Yea, it is an iniquity to be punished by the judges. Albert Barnes states this concerning the verse, and I quote, The sins which Job had specified before this were those of the heart. But here he refers to a crime against society, an offense which deserved the interposition of the magistrate. It may be observed here that adultery has always been regarded as a sin to be punished by judges. In most countries, it has been punished by death, unquote. So people say, oh, no, it's just fleeing or whatever. It ain't going to hurt anything. Yes, it does. It is a sin, a crime against society. Look at Deuteronomy 22.22. Deuteronomy 22.22. It says there, and this is under the law of Moses, If a man be found lying with a woman married to a husband, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman so shalt thou put away evil from Israel. If we executed every adulterer and adulteress, how many people would be left in this country? It is a crime against God. It is a crime against society. It is a crime against both the adulterer and the adulteress and their families. Well, Job says that adultery is a sin that would cause God to send destruction like a consuming fire upon the offender, Job 31.12. For it is a fire that consumeth to destruction, and would root out all mine increase. So indulgence in adultery will destroy lives and utterly ruin those who are involved in it. Albert Barnes states this, and I quote, It is destructive to the body, the morals, the soul. Accordingly, it may be remarked that there is no one vice which pours such desolation through the soul as licentiousness. See Rush on the diseases, diseases of the mind. It corrupts and taints all the fountains of morals and utterly annihilates all purity of the heart. An intelligent gentleman 
A careful observer of the state of things in society once remarked to me that on coming to the city of Philadelphia, it was his fortune to be in the same boarding house with a number of young men, nearly all of whom were known to him to be of licentious habits. He has lived to watch their course of life, and he remarked that there was not one of them who did not ultimately show that he was essentially corrupt and unprincipled in every department of morals, unquote. So what is he saying there? Someone who will commit adultery will be unprincipled in every moral. Doesn't matter what it is. Because if you're going to do that, you'll do anything else against morality, against society. In Job 31.13, Job said he had not been unfair to his servants in matters of disagreement. Job 31.13, if I did despise the cause of my manservant or of my maidservant when they contended with me. So Job is saying here that he gave his servants a fair hearing if they had complaints against him. He didn't go beat them or tell them to be quiet or whatever. He listened to their complaints and reasoned with them. In verse 14, Job said, If he did not give his servants a fair hearing, then God would not give him one. Job 31, 14. What then shall I do when God riseth up and when he visiteth? What shall I answer him? So Job is saying if he had done injustice to his servants, he would have reason to dread divine indignation when God comes to inspect human conduct or his conduct and pronounces impartial justice on people. And you, we need to think about this very seriously because God does inspect us. He inspects our conduct. He inspects our thoughts. He inspects our actions. He inspects our words. And he's going to pronounce impartial justice on us. Job proclaims that God made both him and his servants in the womb. Verse 15 of Job 31. Did not he that made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? So Job is saying right there, everyone has the same creator. In Acts chapter 17, look at verse 26. Acts chapter 17, verse 26. It says there, And hath made of one blood, all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. All human beings are created equal. Albert Barnes, which was published between 1847 and 1885, stated this, and I quote, Hence it is apparent how Christianity that carries this lesson on its forefront is the grand remedy for the evils of slavery and needs only to be universally diffused to bring the system to an end, unquote. 
So right there, <laughs> we see everyone is created equal, and Albert Barnes is saying here, and there was slavery going on at that time. Christianity brings an end to slavery. Now, there was slavery going on during the time of the New Testament as well. And Paul or the New Testament does not condone slavery, but because human beings had slaves, the New Testament does show how slavery is to be practiced. We are to, or they were, to treat slaves good, and slaves were to treat their masters or work for their masters in a way that would be pleasing to God. So all of these things are uh, according uh, about slavery, we'll put it that way, are regulated by the Word of God. And again, slavery in our country does not exist in the way that we think about it. Now, I want to go over and look in Colossians 3.22 and following. It says, Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as, un, as men pleasers, but with single, in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. So right there it tells how slaves uh, today that might be employees are to treat their employers. And then in chapter 4 of Colossians it says, Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. So yes, there was slavery then. And yes, I've mentioned the slavery we normally think about it is it doesn't exist now, but yes, there is slavery going on. You think about human trafficking and such things as that, that's nothing but slavery. Prostitution, those pimps that have them, that's nothing but slavery. And of course, that is all sin as well whenever you look at prostitution. So again, the New Testament does not condone slavery, but it does regulate it because humans practice it. Again, Albert Barnes gave this interesting quotation of one of our presidents, and I quote, I tremble, said President Jefferson, speaking of slavery in the United States, when I remember that God is just, unquote. Well, in Job 31, verse 16, Job said he had not ignored the poor and he had not ignored the cause of the widow. Job 31, 16. If I have withheld the poor from their desire or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail. <clears throat> he hadn't done that. He was accused of that by Eliphaz. But Job helped the poor and he helped the widows. In verse 17, Job fed the orphans and did not withhold their needs from them. He says, Or have eaten, eaten my morsel myself alone, and the fatherless had not eaten thereof. So he was kind to those who were fatherless. He, he helped them. And then in verse 18, Job said he was a father to the orphan 
and a counselor and as a counselor and friend to the widow. Verse 18. For from my youth <clears throat> he was brought up with me as with a father, and I have guided her from my mother's womb. So again, Job was a friend to the widow, a counselor, and not doing what he said he had done earlier about lusting after things such as that. Well, in verses 19 and 20 of Job 31, Job says that he clothed them that were in need. Verses 19 and 20. If I have seen any perish for want of clothing or any poor without covering, if his loins have not blessed me and if he were not warmed with the fleece of my sheep. So the parts that were cold and shivering were now covered with the wool of Job's flocks. He was helping them. He wasn't leaving them to themselves as Eliphaz had claimed. Job said he never neglected the cause of the orphan when he was sitting as a judge in the gate. That's Job 31, 21. If I have lifted up my hand against the fatherless <clears throat> when I saw my help in the gate. Adam Clark says concerning this verse, and I quote, I have at no time opposed the orphan, nor given in behalf of the rich and powerful a decision against the poor when I saw my help in the gate, when I was sitting chief on the throne of judgment and could have done it without being called to account, unquote. So once again, Job is here pointing out the fact that he did this in the open as a magistrate. He helped the widows. He helped the poor. He helped the fatherless, not as Eliphaz had accused him earlier. Job says he never abused his power to oppress orphans and had never taken advantage of them. In verse 22, Job says that if he had done any of these things he is denied doing, let his arm fall off and be broken. Chapter 31, verse 22. Then let mine arm fall from my shoulder blade and mine arm be broken from the bone. In other words, let God break this uncompassionate and sinning arm from its base in the shoulder if I have done the things that I have been accused of. And then Job says his conduct has always been guided by his respect for God's majesty. Job 31, 23. For destruction from God was a terror to me, and by reason of his highness I could not endure. Albert Barnes says about this verse, and I quote, The destruction which God would bring upon one who was guilty of the crime here specified awed and restrained me. He was deterred from his crime of oppressing the fatherless by fear of God. He could have escaped the judgment of people. He had power and influence enough not to dread the penalty of human law. He could have done it in such a way as not to have been arraigned before any earthly tribunal. But 
he remembered that the eye of God was upon him and that he was the avenger of the fatherless and the widow. I was so much awed by his majesty. I had such a veneration for him that I could not be guilty of such an offense." Unquote. In verse 24 of Job 31, Job says he never put his trust in material things. Job 31, 24. If I have made gold my hope, or have said to find gold, thou art my confidence. So Job is saying here, I trusted God, not gold. And yet, most people are just the opposite, are they not? We, we, we trust our wealth instead of God. Well, Job says his happiness was not found in wealth, even though he had been wealthy. Job 31, 25. If I rejoiced because my wealth was great and because mine hand had gotten much, so he said, my, my, my happiness wasn't found in wealth, and yet Job's friends suggested just the opposite. Go to Job 20, and we're going to look at verses 15 and 19. Job 20, 15 and 19, and this is Zophar speaking. He says in verse 15 of Job, he has swallowed down riches, and he shall vomit them up again. God shall cast them out of his belly. Verse 19, because he hath oppressed and hath forsaken the poor, because he hath violently taken away a house which he builded not. So not only did Eliphaz accuse Job of these things, so far had as well. And they accused Job of doing these things, but Job said, that's not where my happiness was found. Job did not worship false gods either. Job 31, 26, and 27. If I beheld the sun when it shined, or the moon walking in brightness, and my heart had been secretly enticed, or my mouth had kissed my hand, Job did not allow his heart to be led away by or from God. And it was customary for idol worships to kiss the idol that they worshiped. An example of that is in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18. God says this to Elijah. Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. Albert Barnes says, and I quote, The Muslims at the present day in their worship at Mecca kiss the black stone which is fastened in the corner of the Beit Allah as often as they pass it in going around the Kaaba. If they cannot come near enough to kiss it, they touch it with the hand and kiss that, unquote. So this idol worship that the Muslims do here, the same thing, Job is saying, I did not do that. I did not kiss my hand that touched an idol, 
which is what the Muslim world does, according to what Albert Barnes says here. In verse 28 of Job 31, Job says, Idolatry rejects God and is worthy of God's judgment. Job 31, 28. This also were an iniquity to be punished by the judge. For I should have denied the God that is above. So God, or Job, regarded the worship of idols as a heinous crime against God. And idolatry was a sin punishable by death uh, later than Job under the law of Moses. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Going to look at verses 2 through 7. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 2 through 7. It says there, If any be found among you within any of thy gates, which the Lord thy God giveth thee, man or woman, that hath wrought wickedness in the sight of the Lord thy God in transgressing his covenant, and hath gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or moon or any of the host of heaven which I have not commanded, and it be told thee, and thou hast heard of it, and inquired diligently, and behold, it be true, and the thing certain that such abomination is wrought in Israel, then shalt thou bring forth that man or that woman which have committed that wicked thing unto thy gates, even that man or that woman, and shalt stone them with stones till they die. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. The hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterwards the hands of all the people. So, or in this way, Thou shalt put away the evil from among you. So, you know, this passage right here just simply says, if you hear that someone has gone and worshipped other gods, and you heard it, you inquired diligently. In other words, you investigated it, and it's true. It's certain. Then that's what is to happen. And Job says, I didn't do that. I have not worshipped false gods. I didn't worship the sun. I didn't worship the moon or any of those celestial bodies like that. Kyle and Delich, in their commentary, stated this, and I quote, His worship of God would have been hypocrisy if he had disowned in secret the God whom he acknowledged openly and outwardly, unquote. And isn't that true of our lives as well? If we disown in secret the God that we acknowledge openly and outwardly, we're nothing but a hypocrite. Nothing but a hypocrite. In Job 31:29, Job did not rejoice when those that hated him were facing misfortune. Job 31:29. If I rejoiced at the destruction of him that hated me or lifted up myself when evil found him. 
I want to look at a couple of verses in Proverbs. First, Proverbs 17.5. Proverbs 17.5. It says there, Whoso mocketh the poor reproacheth his maker, and he that is glad at calamities shall not be unpunished. So right there, do not be glad at the calamity of others. And then Proverbs 24, 17. Proverbs 24, 17. It says, Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth. So Job was practicing this before Solomon wrote those words. He did not bear malice or hatred against those that hated him. In Job 31.30, Job did not speak evil against those that hated him. Job 31.30. Neither have I suffered my mouth to sin by wishing a curse to his soul. Albert Barnes says concerning this verse, and I quote, Few are the people probably even now who could say this and who are enabled to keep their minds free from every wish that calamities and woes may overtake those who are seeking their hurt. Yet this is the nature of true religion. It controls the heart, represses the angry and revengeful feelings, and creates in the soul an earnest desire for the happiness even of those who injure us, unquote. What was it Jesus said? Love your enemies. Job's servants, he says in verse 31 of chapter 31, he says his servants could testify to Job's generosity. Job 31, 31. If the men of my tabernacle said not, Oh, that we had of his flesh, we cannot be satisfied. Well, the people there that knew Job best could not think of anyone that Job had not helped. A case never occurred when Job did not help those who were in need. And in verse 32, he says he was willing to help strangers. Job 31, 32. The stranger did not lodge in the street, but I opened my doors to the traveler. Job was a hospitable, a hospitable man. He opened his home to strangers. Adam Clark said concerning this verse, and I quote, my kindness did not extend merely to my family, domestics, and friends. The stranger, he, was, he who was to me perfectly unknown and the traveler, he was on, who was on his way to some other district, found my door ever open to receive them, and they were refreshed with my bed and my board, unquote. And then Job said, he didn't try to hide his sin, like Adam tried. Job 31, 33. If I covered my transgressions as Adam, 
by hiding my iniquity in my bosom. Yep, Adam sinned and he tried to hide it. Look at Genesis 3, 8 through 12. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. So right here, Job goes back to Adam and says, when Job says, when I sinned, I was ready to acknowledge my sin. I was ready to repent. I wasn't going to seek excuses like Adam did. Blame someone else. Job said he was not that way. He also said he was not intimidated by the popular opinions of others. Chapter 31, verse 34. Did I fear a great multitude? Or did the contempt of families terrify me that I kept silence and went not out of the door? In other words, Job did not allow peer pressure or political pressure to silence him when he needed to speak up. He wasn't going to be quiet, regardless of what was popular, regardless of how he was being bullied to do something different. He maintained his integrity, and he spoke up when it needed to be done. And then in verse 35, though, Job still believes that God is not listening to his cries for help. Job 31, 35. Oh, that one would hear me. Behold, my desire is that the Almighty would answer me, and that mine adversary had written a book. In other words, Job still believes that God considers him an adversary. Job desires an answer from God, and, and that God would write an indictment, you know, the book there, write an indictment against him so he could have an opportunity to defend himself. Tell me why this is happening. In verses 36 and 37, Job says, well, if God convicts him, he's willing to publicly bear the charges made against him. Job 31, 36, and 37. Surely I would take it upon my shoulder and bind it as a crown to me. I would declare unto him the number of my steps. As a prince would I go near unto him. So Job is saying that he is willing to carry this book around that contains the list of charges that God has made against him and wear it as a crown. Kylan Delich said this, and I quote, 
confident of his victory at the outset, for he will give him, God, the heart searcher, an account of all his steps, and in the exalted consciousness of his innocence, he will approach him as a prince. How totally different from Adam, who was obliged to be drawn out of his hiding place and trembling, because conscious of guilt underwent the examination of the omniscient God, or all-knowing God. Job is not conscious of cowardly and slyly hidden sins. No secret accursed thing is cherished in the inmost recesses of his heart and home, unquote. So Job is saying he would declare to God his entire course of life and approach God as a prince with firm and upright steps. And then Job even calls upon his land to testify in his case. Job 31, 38. If my land cry against me, or that the furrows likewise thereof complain. Job's land, or the furrows of his field, he says, could not condemn Job's actions. And then Job says in verses 39 and 40, if he had stolen from others or caused them to lose their, lose their life, let his property be cursed. Job 31, 39, and 40. If I have eaten the fruits thereof without money or have caused the owners thereof to lose their life, let thistles grow instead of wheat and cockle instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. So Job did not eat the fruits of others or his own fruits without paying for them. Now, he may be speaking there of leasing land from others that he used for crops, and he may be speaking of harvesting his own fields and paying his servants for their work. You see, Job was not like Jezebel, who had Naboth killed to give his vineyard to King Ahab. We go back to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings. And we look back, let's see. I didn't have this written down. Don't you love it whenever you things come to your mind and you want to say some things like this? But uh, in 1 Kings, Ahab was a wicked man. And he wanted to take Naboth's vineyard. And Jezebel sent and had Naboth killed because he wanted his vineyard. And so we look at Job here. He wasn't like Jezebel and Ahab who had Naboth killed. Job says if he was guilty of these wrongs, let thorns and thistles come up instead of wheat and barley. And I'll just leave that to, as your homework today to find that place in 1 Kings. Job's discussion with his friends is ended. Job's words are stopped. 
Some say Job said this himself, that the words of Job are ended. Others say that the writer of the book inserted the words. Whichever it may be, Job's words are ended until after God speaks to him. Well, Job has said enough in his own defense. He's refuted the arguments made by his three friends. He has vindicated his character and has been unrelenting in his positions. Job still is pleading with God to come to him and to give him the reason or reasons Job is suffering so greatly, and he's willing to defend his character. Well, God is going to speak to Job. He's going to come to him, but he's not going to get tell him why it's happening. But before that happens, another one of Job's friends, Elihu, has a great deal to say first. So again, this is Don Boyd with the Moody Church of Christ. I want to thank you for tuning in today to Opening the Scriptures, and we look forward to being with you next time. We hope you enjoyed this program. We encourage you to subscribe to our podcast on Pandora, Spotify, or Podbean. Thanks for listening.